In today's episode, we open our Bibles to the book of Joshua, chapter 12. This chapter serves as a captivating historical ledger, meticulously listing the kings and territories conquered by the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua, but also of Moses. Compelling testament to the fulfillment of God's promise and the relentless determination of the Israelites as they secure their foothold in the promised land. Good morning and blessed Pentecost. Today is Monday, October 2nd, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is brought to you in part by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. You can learn more about their translating and publishing work on their website at lhfmissions.org. Joining me this morning to make our way through chapter 12 is the Reverend Jacob Heine, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Good morning, Pastor Heine, and welcome back to the program. Good morning, Pastor Boo. Great to be with you again. Well, you and I talked a little bit off the air about the uniqueness of this chapter. <laughs> Unlike some of the ones we've been going through, this one doesn't have as much of a narrative, and as I kind of said, it's like a ledger or a recounting or even a summary of everything that's happened up to this point. And uh, one thing that stood out to me is that it has a ton of Hebrew names, which for those who have been listening to the show for a while, just know I love. I just love it because, <laughs> because it's sometimes really hard to figure out how to pronounce it, but we're going to do our best, or I'll do my best. Um, but anything, anything about the chapter that stood out to you? Oh, well, I chuckled when I opened my Bible and read this one, because I think this is when people are reading through the Bible, they normally hit these sections and they, they skim it at best, uh, looking for something interesting. And if they don't find it, they move on to the next thing. But I think God has a few interesting tidbits for us in here that we can glean from the text and, and see how God is working and how God fights for us and loves us and cares for us, even in the things we don't always understand which is great. Um, and with the names, I always tell my people when they get up to read a name, if they don't know it, say it with gusto, because I probably don't know it either. So it'll be fine. That's right. That's right. Well, and you know, it's, you were talking about the, the parts of the Bible that sometimes you just skip over. And I'll be honest, that's true. You get, you get bogged down in the begats or the, or the numerical thing, unless you're studying that topic, unless you want to know you know, how many teaspoons the army had, then then maybe that's interesting. But some of that stuff really is for historical reasons, but isn't, and it's okay for it to not always be, you know, the most interesting to you unless you're studying it. That's why I also encourage people when they're reading the Bibles, if you start to get bogged down um, in a text and it's because of something like that, well, then just skip it, right? Just skip it. Um, it's better to be in the Word than to feel like reading the Word is a chore. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and today's section will uh, not be a chore if we can do our very best, and if the Holy Spirit is with us, which I'm sure he'll be, um, so that we can uh, petition the Lord to be with us today. Let's begin with prayer. And Would you lead us in that prayer, please? Gladly. Uh, gracious God, Heavenly Father, uh, your word is a light to our feet, a lamp to our path. And we know that even in the midst of your uh, Holy Scripture that you give to us, there are challenging sections and difficult sections, uh, both in uh, theology, but also in history and in, in fact. And sometimes it 
becomes a burden, but allow your text not to be a burden today, but to speak to us, to open our eyes to your mighty power, your grace for us, and how you you fight on our behalf here in this world and in the spiritual realm as well. Uh, give us your grace, your love, and your spirit here that will point us to Christ our Lord, who has risen and lives so that we can live with you as well. In his holy, most precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Chapter 11 was covering the conquest up in northern Canaan, um, and that's sort of the the last kind of narrative part before we get into our section today. Uh, maybe catch the folks up, though, just a little bit. What, what has been going on? You know, if this is going to be a summary, which we're going to cover today, maybe give just a tiny little summary of the summary of what we've been going through. Well, certainly. So in Joshua, Joshua's the, this wonderful uh, story, a uh, historical story that tells us of the conquest of the promised land. So uh, Moses has uh, died and his leadership has moved on to Joshua. And Joshua now is moving into this land of promise that God had made all the way back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, their time in Egypt as slaves was anticipating a return here. And we've had uh, the first half of Joshua looking towards how they have conquered uh, the outside area of the promised land, as it were, on the east side of the Jordan River. And yet they're getting ready also to move into the the land still to be conquered. That's going to take probably, if I remember correctly, another seven, eight years uh, of fighting before they'll finally take hold of the entire promised land. Um, so it's 12, chapter 12 kind of serves as that bridge mark between the first half where they've uh, taken over and conquered the land on the east of the Jordan, and they're getting ready to move into the land on the west, uh, the land of the promise. Well, let's see um, what this chapter has to teach us today. I'm going to go ahead and read it, the first section. Uh, let's say the first six verses. The ESV editors have named this, Kings Defeated by Moses. Now these are the kings of the land whom the people of Israel defeated and took possession of their land beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise from the valley of the Arnon to Mount Hermon with all the Arabah eastward. Sihon, king of Amorites who lived at Heshbon and ruled from Aror, which is on the edge of the valley of Arnon, and from the middle of the valley as far as the river Jabbok, the boundary of the Ammonites, that is, half of Gilead, and the Arabah to the sea of Chinneroth, eastward, and in the direction of Beth Jeshimah, to the sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, southward to the foot of the slopes of Pisgah, and Og, king of Bashan, one of the remnant of the Raphim, who lived at Ashtaroth and at Edrai, and ruled over Mount Hermon and Salakah, and all the Bashan to the boundary of the Geshurites and the Maakathites over half of Gilead to the boundary of Sihon, king of Heshbon. Moses, the servant of Yahweh, and the people of Israel defeated them. And Moses, the servant of Yahweh, gave their land for a possession to the Reubenites and the Gadites and the half-tribe of Manasseh. All right, there we go. That, that ends our section. Um <laughs> Lots of uh, lots of things to dig into. Now, obviously, it'd be very difficult for us on a radio program to kind of give a geography lesson. I suppose we could, but that would be really difficult. Um, I'm not sure that we're going to do a whole lot of that today. Just note that um, 
what we're seeing here is that before we even get into Joshua, it's kind of a recap of the kings that were defeated under Moses. Now, what I think is striking about this, brother, is that by going kind of back to Moses, and of course, at the end, it identifies Moses as what? Twice, the servant of Yahweh. I think there's this connection that it's not really Moses, but it's Yahweh. And then under Joshua, it's not really Joshua, but it's Yahweh. And it's not really you, Israelites, it's Yahweh. And, and the more and more you read, the more you see that this is Yahweh, sometimes up front, sometimes behind the scenes, um, winning victory for his people. Absolutely. I think that is so important that we keep that in focus because it's, I think even in this text, you know, it starts with, you know, no, these are the, the kings of the land from whom the people of Israel defeated. And you think, oh, Israel's been this, you know, strong force who's doing all this work. Um, and we easily can get to the end without realizing, no, it wasn't Israel, right? Uh, God fights for Israel. That's, that's the theme of the Old Testament. That's actually the theme of the entire Bible, right? God fights right. for his people and he goes before his people. I've been studying Amos in my Sunday morning class and, and brought that up, how it, you know, the, the pronouns there remind us of how God goes before Israel. God, you know, went before them in a pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. Don't forget Israel. Don't forget what God has done. And that's the same call for us today. Don't forget how God has gone before you uh, to, to fight on your behalf, to work on your behalf, to bring about salvation and grace and mercy on your behalf. It wasn't you. It was God Almighty who fights for you. Yes, and, and, and these sections uh, include all the, I guess, all those who were conquered uh, under the leadership of Moses, of course, by the hand of Yahweh, in what we call the Transjordan. Uh, the Transjordan, I guess the easiest way to just understand that is that it's the region east of the Jordan River, right? It's, it's on the wrong side of the Jordan as they're heading up to the Promised Land. By this point in the narrative, in the historical account, they already possess all of this. In fact, they're already into the promised land, which we're going to read a little bit about in a minute. But we see here that, that God is continuing his work really, really from Egypt. You know, and of course, it, before then too. But the story, I guess, starts as, a, as in earnest in Egypt where the people were rescued by Yahweh. And Yahweh, all he asked of them and all he really asks of us is faith. Faith to obey his word, faith to trust in him to prevail, faith to do the Ten Commandments, you know, faith to look forward to the Messiah, or in our case, to look back to the Messiah who has come. Um, it doesn't seem like a whole lot to ask from the creator of the universe who loves us so much that he's constantly bailing us out of trouble. Oh, yeah. And you know, I, I remind my people again, you know, all the time when we're talking about God's providence and how he takes care of us and how he loves us, um, you know, God is in control. We go back to the beginning before creation, there was just God and, and he creates and he makes and he does for us on our behalf, but it's still God. And, um, you know, if we come across something we don't like or we don't understand or something in scripture that God tells us to do, um, it's not God who's supposed to change. <laughs> we are, right. and, you know, we, we change to, to be God's people so we can see his work. And I think even in this text, uh, you know, Joshua puts in some references, even to ancient Israel. Uh, you know, I 
when we're reading through this and I was thinking about this, you know, he mentions the river Jabbok, the Wadi Jabbok, um, which is where Jacob wrestled with God um, before he met his brother Esau in Genesis. And, you know, here's a reminder to the people as they're, they're hearing these words again, a reminder to us as we're hearing these words again, you know, God, God wrestles with us. He also wrestles on behalf of us. Um, And, uh, he, he gives us a new name, the name that's above every name, the name that Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And here in this text, we're, we're reminded of that as we come across that river again, and we're reminded, oh yeah, God, God wrestled with his people, but he also wrestles for his people. And the beautiful picture that's there in that. And that's so true. And, and, and these places where all these things are happening, you know, they sound so foreign to us, but you talked about Jabbok. But we also have here the Sea of Chenaroth, which I, you at home will know better as the Sea of Galilee. So, I mean, even the area in which they are currently operating, or in this case, that, uh, that Moses had operated, these places show up again. They're real places. So we have the Sea of Galilee, this beautiful, large, freshwater lake just below the headwaters of the Jordan. It's mentioned uh, according to my notes, 197 times in the Bible. But we can't help but think of the Sea of Galilee from, of course, Jesus and his uh, fishermen disciples. Uh, and, of course, the Jordan itself, let's not forget, Jesus' own baptism in the Jordan and John the baptizer working in the Jordan. So, you know, God's activity isn't going to end at the end of Joshua, and it's not going to end with them okay, we're in the promised land, so we're here, we're good, we're taken care of, thanks God for all the fish. But no, it's going to continue and uh, into the New Testament and into today. So even as they're entering the promised land, or in this case with Moses, the, the sort of the precursor to the promised land, um, God is really pointing toward something greater. It, it's more than just here's a bunch of territory that you can live in because that's only good so far as you, you know, are alive. But there is a promised land to come. And I think this really is the ultimate point. And I hate to kind of bring it all home before we even get to the next section. But, but really, we're looking forward to that promised land. And if we're trying to rely on our own efforts, if we're trying to stand before God on our own righteousness, then we're going to fail. And we see that in the history of Israelite, the Israelites, as they tried to do things on their own, they fail. But when they relied on God, they were successful. And so, you know, that's a message for us too. Mm, yeah, so much so. Um, the the rely, I love that reliance on God and the reliance on God to conquer, um, and how He does. Yeah, as you said, you know, points us to Jesus. Everything in Scripture points us to Jesus. You get the Jabbok that reminds us of of. Jacob and Israel, but he wrestles with Yahweh himself. And then we get the, you mentioned the, the Sea of Galilee, reminding us of Christ and him, his power over all things, right? He walks on the Sea of Galilee and, uh, and he can calm the storms of the Sea of Galilee and the, the Jordan River, the, the Salt Sea, the Dead Sea there, and how God brings us through, through water uh, and baptism, bringing us to a land of promise, a land uh, of resurrection, life, and even in, in the names of some of the cities, we get Ashtaroth, which is probably, you know, named after one of the Canaanite fertility gods, uh, and how God conquers the foreign pagan gods as well, and the foreign pagan gods of Israel, but also the, the 
things in our life that we fear, love, and trust above him. God has all power over those things too. And so these these small words, these places that seem so innocuous or unimportant when we're reading through this and we and we skim through it, um, sometimes pull us to to see God's great hand and mighty outstretched arm on our behalf. Let's talk about the Asherah poles of our present age just a little bit, because you know you're right, and and that's something that hadn't stood out to me immediately. But you're so right that even the names of these cities, which of course were named in honors of the false god, God is victorious over those gods because they are nothing. But the people of God are victorious over those who would dedicate themselves to these false gods. Well, in these last days, we certainly see a continuation of, um, you know, this worship of false gods. And sometimes I think we feel like it's, it's our duty as Christians to go out and change the minds of everybody, to, to basically burn down society and rebuild it in God's image, or maybe a little less dramatically. You know, we need to do everything we can to influence society to be Christian. Now, there's a lot of different opinions about the church's role in society, um, but we do know that any change is going to happen. It changes in the heart of people by the power of God and his gospel. With that said, as we study through Joshua, we're talking about conquering lands. And, and one of the things that another guest brought up, which is important, is that at this time, the people of Israel, the nation of Israel, and the so-called church of Israel, um, they were... Uh, all one in the same. But in these last days, of course, God has given us two realms. He operates through the law in the realm of the left-hand kingdom, which is like government, and those are the ones who wage wars and punish un uh, evildoers, and he reigns in the right-hand realm, the realm of the church, through the gospel, through forgiveness, and through his word. Both work together. So all of that lead up to, to ask you this, brother. What do you think the church's role is in changing society? Again, some people say that we should influence society for the best. Some people say that Christians should just hide from society and sequester themselves until Jesus comes back. And then there's a lot of opinions in the middle. I don't know that there's even a right or wrong one, but what do you think? <laughs> there probably isn't a right or wrong one. Uh, well, there could be some wrong ones. Let's put it that way. Well, uh, <laughs> but, um, you know, I was recently at the... Uh, Concordia St. Louis Theological Symposium, and this topic was covered there. Uh, it was the, you know, living with hope in a secular age was the name of the symposium this year. And what a, a, a powerful thought of how do we live with hope. And Dr. Joel Bierman actually kind of addressed this. And he said, you know, our job as Christians is not necessarily to make a utopia. We're not looking to make heaven on earth. That's not our job. Uh, on the last day of the consummation, all things, God will put together uh, the realm of the left and the realm of the right, the, the temporal and the spiritual, and they'll become one again. Um, but until then, the goal of Christians in the world is to live, to bring about that now and not yet of the restoration and resurre resurrection life, to point people to there is still hope in this world that seems so hopeless. Um, we're not going to make it a Christian society. We're not going to make it a Christian world. Uh, that's not our job. Our, that's God's job on the last day. Our job is to live as if the resurrection is imminent and what that would mean. So to love our neighbor so that they would come to faith, to take care of the, the, 
the widow and the homeless and the poor and the, the orphan to proclaim Christ's love. So everything we do in, in that sense has an ulterior motive. Um, it's to point to the one who fights for us and fights on behalf of us, the one who fought Satan and won, who conquered him in the resurrection and forgave our sins on the cross. And our life there is to be lived in the church as Christians, as Christ followers, to proclaim that message of restoration and resurrection in Christ and the hope we have that is ours now, but certainly is ours in the future with, with, the, with God in the world that has no end. I mean, recognizing that the resurrection is indeed imminent, could be any day, and prayerfully, prayerfully would be sooner than later, uh, the Church's goal seems to be just to reflect the teachings and values of, of people who trust in their God and are waiting for the resurrection. It seems like that attitude alone would alter how we interact with the world. And then, of course, society, I believe, would be influenced by the love and humility and commitment uh, from, from the church, from the people of God. And we, and we do that in a lot of ways. I mean, we have preaching and teaching, of course. We community outreach. Uh, some churches involve themselves in a lot of, of uh, I guess for lack of a better word, social witness advocacy. They're out there and they're, they're trying to alleviate, I don't know, poverty or justice or rec racial reconciliation or environmental stuff. I don't think those things are completely outside the church's purview, right? A lot of those can be guided by God's word. We just have to make sure we are letting them be guided by God's word. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say, I absolutely agree. I think it is the place of the church to have a voice in those things so that they are um, done for the right reasons. Right? I mean, there, we know that racism is sinful and wrong. And to, to, to have a voice in there that says, you know, God values all people of all, all races. Um, you know, any ism leads us down a wrong path to talk about how God cares for the earth. He created it. It's his. He loves the earth. And so we should take care of it. Um, all those things, when we, you know, use God's word and we live as ones fed by his sacraments and restored in the faith, you know, when we do those things, we bring Christ to the nations and we bring Christ into difficult conversations that need to be had with people that don't know our God or maybe don't even like our God. Yes, I mean, it's incredibly important because there's also a lot of misunderstanding and I guess we should be really self-reflective here. Let's say on both sides. There's so mm -hmm. many people who misunderstand the perspective of the church because of Christians who erred in the past. And I believe sometimes we don't give people a fair shake out there in their goals just because maybe they're not motivated by the same reasons we are. So I think the church has certainly a role in these places. But as you said so rightly, when we're out there doing it and we're engaging in it or engaging in dialogue or conversation with people from a Christian perspective, it's not about telling them they have to be Christians. It's about letting them see how God is going to win the day over these issues, not our own strength, not our own wisdom, not our own programs or methods or our own advocacy or political engagement. At the end of the day, my God might work through some of those things, but God is the one who is in control. And, and imagine those who are living their lives constantly just angered and frustrated and deeply hurt by 
poverty or justice issues or racial issues or even environmental issues. There are people out there today, according to polls, especially young people, who are having nervous breakdowns over the fear of climate change. Mm-hmm. And it's like, instead of fear-mongering climate change, and we don't even have to agree on human-made climate change, all we have to do is say, from a Christian point of view, we're to take care of the environment, the gifts that God has given us. And Christ, at the end of the time, though, is going to be the one who restores all things. It's a both-and. We take care of what God has given us, but we also trust that God is going to be there. He's going to do the work. So it takes the anxiety out of it while we still, of course, are doing something, if that makes sense. Right. I, yeah, you're, you're so right on that. I think so often, and it comes back to, again, we're back to Joshua here, right? Um, and that last passage that the Lord has done this, right? Yahweh has defeated his enemies. Yahweh has given the land of the possession. And for us in this day and age, that anxiety of I have to do, I have to perform, I, I have to be the one who who saves my neighbor, or I have to do, you know, fix the earth, and that anxiety and the pressure that that brings, instead of having that right attitude that says, no, God does it, right? The Holy Spirit brings faith, and God works in his ways. And sometimes, yeah, he chooses to use us as the means to do that, which praise be to God when he does, but we're called to live as Christ followers in the world and love our neighbor and let God do what God does. And that takes a whole lot of pressure off. It, you know, I, I don't have to worry about, am I going to screw it up or mess it up? Or am I going to say the right thing, the wrong thing? I trust that God through his spirit is going to lead me to, to be his, his advocate in the world when it's needed. And then when I mess it up, he's still going to work it out because that's what he does. And he is always good. And you say it takes the pressure off, right? We're just called yeah. to live our lives, uh, not, to, not to necessarily change the world. But through living our lives, we might end up changing the world. I don't think people like Martin Luther King Jr., who, of course, was a Baptist pastor, I don't think he got up there to try to change the world. I think he was following God, and, of course, the world changed through God's intervention. Uh, you know, as, as someone wise once said, everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to change the toilet paper roll. <laughs> <laughs> we have a lot to do just living our lives. Um, and we can trust in God, of course, to help guide our actions for good and for bad. Um, and hey, folks at home, if you disagree or you have a different perspective, I'd love to hear from you. And I'd pass your notes on to our guest. Remember, you can reach me by email at pastorboo at gmail.com or you can find me on Facebook. But for right now, I think we're going to have to take a break. So folks, don't go anywhere. When we come back, Pastor Heine and I will keep on going with Joshua chapter 12, and we'll get back to the text, we promise. See you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help, because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan316.
Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Wu. With me this morning is the Reverend Jacob Heine, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. As I said before the break, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, I do like to hear from you, even if perhaps you have a different opinion or maybe you disagree. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. I try to get back to everybody, or you can find me on Facebook. But most of all, I just want to thank you for taking the time to be in God's Word with us today. Now, if you want to write me or you reach out by email, be sure to let me know where you're listening from and how you connect to the show. Share the show with your friends, too. They can listen on the air in St. Louis on 8.50 a.m. or as a podcast on their favorite podcasting platform. You can also just head over on a web browser or on your phone to kfuo.org and you can listen to the stream live just as if you were near the transmission station or you can you know, dial up whatever you want on demand. Any of the programs of KFUO are right there for the listening whenever you want, even historical ones going back years. If that sounds too complicated, and well, it's not, but I encourage you also to download the KFUO radio app on your phone. Now, that's an excellent way to listen to the show. It's always available, and it's easy to navigate to your favorite shows like Concord Matters or Thy Strong Word or Cross Defense or, um, oh, what else do we got? We have A Sharper Iron, uh, Wrestling with the Basics, uh, just those off the top of my head. For My apologies for anybody I've forgotten. There's just so much. It's hard to remember everything that KFU offers. Okay, well, back to the Bible. Uh, I think we've pretty much uh, looked as close as we can to that previous section, so we're going to head right into verse 7 all the way to the end of our section for this morning, which is verse 24, the end of the chapter. And these are the kings of the land whom Joshua and the people of Israel defeated on the west side of the Jordan, from Baal God in the valley of Lebanon to Mount Halak that rises toward Seir. And Joshua gave their land to the tribes of Israel as a possession according to their allotments in the hill country, in the lowland, in the Arabah, in the slopes, in the wilderness, and in the Negeb, the land of the Hittites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, and the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the Jebusites. The king of Jericho won, the king of Ai, which is beside Bethel, won. The king of Jerusalem won. The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. The king of Lachish won. The king of Eglon won. The king of Gezer won. The king of Debir won. The king of Gader won. The king of Hormah won. The king of Arad won. The king of Libna one, the king of Adulam, one, the king of Makedah, one, the king of Bethel, one, the king of Tapua, one, the king of Hefer, one, the king of Aphek, one, the king of Lasharon, one, the king of Madon, one, the king of Hazor, one, the king of Shimron Meron, one, the king of uh, Akshaf, one, the king of Taanak, one, the king of Megiddo, one, the king of Kedish, one, the king of Jokniam in Carmel, one, the king of Dor in Naphath-Dor, one, the king of Goim in Galilee, one, and the king of Tirzah, one, in all 31 kings. And back to our guest, Pastor Heine, one, 
So you, <laughs> you, well, well, okay. So obviously, this is just a long list of kings. I, you know, it's one of those things where, could you imagine if this was your? I mean, it's our section today to talk about for another twenty-eight minutes. But how would you preach on such a text? I mean, not every text in the Bible lends itself to preaching, but I think a good preacher could preach on just about anything, uh, and I think that's what we're kind of being called upon today. But we see all of these kings that are named, which is, I think, fascinating in and of itself because their names are remembered for eternity, but what they're remembered for is falling under the mighty hand of God. Hmm. I bet that's not what they expected when they were building up their kingdoms. Oh, certainly not. Uh, and some of these are ones that we've recognized from earlier in Joshua. Um, some of them we'll encounter later on in the scriptures. Uh, Eglon, one of my favorite kings, the, the king of Eglon and the left-handed judge Ehud in the book of Judges, uh, one of my favorite mm-hmm. stories. And, you know, so you, you have all these different uh, kings and characters and names and places and you know, you said, how do you preach on this? Where would, where would we go with this? Um, you know, several things jump out to me. The first one is the repetition of the word one. Uh, what, what a beautiful way for us to think about things, right? There, there's the, this one king, and sometimes that one king, that one thing in our life that seems to rule, right? A king is something that rules or someone who rules. What, the one thing that's ruling over our lives and we could talk about how uh, in this world, sometimes it's the one thing is, is money. Uh, one thing may be success. One thing may be your family. One thing may be sports. Uh, you know, that, what's that one thing? Maybe it's even a drug addiction. The one thing that rules over your life that brings us to the one, Jesus, who rules over all the one things. Uh, the the Christ, our Lord, who has the power over uh, the one who seems so powerful, Satan himself. Uh, As Paul says, you know, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Or maybe we'd say the one who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. And uh, we could take this long list of uh, pagan kings and foreign kings and foreignness in our life and point us to the one who rules and reigns to all eternity. Oh, indeed. And that will preach, as they say, for sure. And we see here, too, you talk about what's that one that reigns over. Well, these kings each thought that they were the most powerful in all of their land and even the most powerful, perhaps, in their region. And yet there is this completeness, right? The king of Hebron won. The king of Jarmuth won. You know, there, there's no other battles. There's no other—it is 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 in its entirety, taken care of uh, by God. You know, it, it's, it's a stylistic element in the text, of course, and it's actually a pretty common feature in Near Eastern texts, not just this part of the Bible. Uh, but this, this one, it underscores that every single king in these regions were defeated, right? So it's just, it's almost like checking off the list. You know, here's the things I have to do. Check, 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 check. So just as we might have that one thing that rules over us that we need to have defeated in our lives, and yet it's just too powerful for us. God sees it less as a powerful one ruler, but just as another thing to check off the list as he cares for his people. And he does, of course, that 
through Joshua here in his leadership, uh, Yeshua here through his leadership. And as I do not miss an opportunity to make the connection, we have, of course, Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Joshua, who is also known as Jesus, who comes and he basically takes the whole list of God's activity and anything that we might try to add. And at the very end, he just sort of checks it all off, right? It's done. It is finished, I think I heard him say. Mm, right. Uh, yeah, the, how, the, how the mighty have fallen, as you, were, as you would say, you know, uh, by, the, by the one who overcomes all. And I also think about when I look at these lists, you know, you think about sometimes other lists in the Bible that seem uh, unimportant but have so much importance for us. There's the genealogies of Jesus, both in Matthew and Luke, and how they point us to Christ as uh, both the, the son of David and the son of, of, of man and all that goes along with that. But then there's other lists of names, uh, foreign kings who tried to take out uh, that Satan used to try to curb or to uh, keep Jesus from his job. You know, you get Herod uh, in the slaughter of the innocents, uh, Herod and Tap and Typus uh, with the, the fox he calls him. Right? Uh, you get Pontius Pilate and Caiaphas and Annas and all these different people whose names, as just like here, have been recorded for all eternity now. Uh, that remind us of how. God's purposes and God's plans always come to pass, even when uh, sometimes it doesn't seem like God's doing what we think he should be doing, and he's still working out his mission and his plan in, in the world. Indeed, indeed. And as we, as we also look back to this sort of on the ground, not all of these locations are known to us today, but they would have been known to the people of that time. And so I think it's just another reminder, too, about the historicity of these events. People listening or hearing these names back then, the original audience, we might say, they're so much more connected to the people and places than we are just because of time and distance and everything else. So for them, it would have been even more uh, poignant that God is conquering. They would have heard about not only the names and the places, but the great victories or the power or the economic prowess. Um, so I imagine, imagine this, at the end of time when Christ returns, and instead of listing off some names of kings and places we've never heard of, suddenly, you know, Christ is victorious over, you know, uh, the, the United Kingdom, <laughs> over Spain, over Germany, over all of Africa, over all of South America, over the United States, over Canada, you know, just imagine all 200 some countries just checked off one by one. God is the one who is in control. I, I think that would have been akin to them because from their limited perspective of the world, this would pretty much be the whole world that they knew. I mean, sure, they knew of some way distant people, but but yeah, they would have said, wow, God really is just conquering and, and leaving in his wake uh, nothing but the promised land for us to inhabit. Mm. Yeah, I, and what a what an interesting thought as you're you're talking about that because I started thinking about what if we were to list out, you know, the the president of the United States won, you know, mm -hmm. the King of England won, uh, and what that means for us, especially in our theology with our two realms in the temporal realm. You know, God places uh, rulers and authorities over us. This is Romans thirteen, right? 
Uh, he places rulers and authorities over us to respect, but who put him there? God put him there. There's they're still God's uh, person in that place to wield the sword until the consummation of the age. And yet they still are subjected to him. Right. Yep. I, this is something that people get confused by because they say, well, if our government and those who are our leaders, in this case, our presidents and governors and et cetera, legislators and judges, if they are ministers of God bearing the sword for his purposes, then why do they do it wrongly? Or, you know, why do they do it poorly? And the answer is you can be called by God and even have God over you and still not do what he says. I mean, that's our own faults. How many times have we refused to do what God wants us to do or have done it sinfully or poorly? And we also must remember that even in the cases of evil rulers, God's still over them too. God used the rulers of the Babylonians and of the, of the, um, the Assyrians, and, and, and God continues to use rulers. So God calls all rulers, whether it's the Shah of Iran or the President of the United States, to follow his will and do what he commands. Now, I think that's a little separated from whether or not they actually do it. Oh, absolutely. Uh, just because we're called to do the things that God calls us to do. I mean, I, even as a pastor, I'd like to say that I'm perfect and I do everything God wants me to, but I know better than that. I know that you know there are times my own sinful desires and my own sinful flesh get in the way, and that's you know true of any person, including rulers. But you know we look at it and say, well, God can, God can use, and God does use. You you pointed out some great ones. Uh, through scripture that God used to bring about his purpose. Even Pilate, uh, who, you know, is held up for all time. He's in our creed as, you know, Christ crucified under Pontius Pilate uh, was placed there in that time to, you know, bring about God's purposes for the salvation of the world. And Pilate had no idea that's what God was doing through him. And yet that's what came about. I don't want to derail the conversation any further, but I always feel bad for Pilate. I really do. You know, I mean, obviously, Pilate um, did not. Well, see, Pilate is a tough case because it was through his, I guess, inaction that allowed Jesus to be crucified. But of course, that ends up being used by God for the, the most amazing and best thing that's ever happened in the universe. But at the same time, you know, you have Pilate who, because he was not a believer, He's just doing his job. <laughs> you know, he, right. he was just trying to keep the peace and, and he didn't want to get in trouble with his boss. And, you know, and I know that makes it seem a little crass in light of the amazing story of Christ's sacrifice. But look at it from his point of view. He did he have the opportunity to believe? I, well, I do think so. Did he reject that? I, I, maybe I, I believe. I don't know. I don't know. I can't read Pilate's heart. But I can tell you that I believe that he was a man stuck in a situation where he had to he had to either do what his job was or he had to sort of throw it all away for this Christ and he yeah and he didn't and but that's easy for us 2000 years later to look back and say oh what an evil man or to constantly mention him every single sunday in churches around the world um i i i think that we are also confronted with that we who actually even know better because now the christ has come and the holy spirit's worked faith in our heart how often are we confronted with, do we do what's easy, which is, of course, against what God wants us to do, or do we do what is right by God? And, and that brings the question back to this, which is, these kings, 
They were just kind of doing their job. But the big difference, I think, between them and Pilate is that they had been at war with the people of Israel, which, of course, puts them at war with God. Mm. And God certainly isn't making the Israelites come in and conquer a, 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 an innocent, peaceful people just to take their land away from them. And that's one of the big issues that people often bring up when we talk about these uh, these these wars and the conquering of the the of the land. And to no one's surprise, they still argue over that promised land today, even after our understanding of it has been broadened by Christ. Oh yeah. Oh, where do I start? Um, you gave me so many wonderful things to think about there. Um, you know, and I think with Pilate. And even with these kings, we look at and say, in a way, right, they're fulfilling their placement, their vocation by God in uh, the temporal realm as they, you know, their job is to keep the peace, uh, to keep out threats, to, uh, you know, make sure there's law and order in their, their places. And so, yeah, Pilate does what he's called to do, which is to keep keep order and to to do the right thing now you know we can argue and i think certainly rightly so you know did he put an innocent man to death even with no substantive charges certainly um you know he feared for his own position more than he he respected uh the law at that point and you know we can we can definitely split some hairs and, and talk about that and you know we don't know what happened to him afterward did he become a believer did he not i know there's a lot of different traditions on that and in the end we'll find out that'll be not for us to ask at this point but on the last day we'll know um but you know the same thing with the kings here you know they're doing their their job they're they're fulfilling their role and um and god is still doing what god does and and god fulfills his promises he promised israel this land he promised them this this place uh, just like he has promised us salvation and grace through Christ and that neither height nor depth nor rulers nor principalities nor anything in all of creation will be able to keep his love from us. And that on the, the last day at the restoration of all things, we will live with him in an age and a kingdom that has no end. And, and so we look forward to that just as the children of Israel look forward to the promised land and the land that God had promised them that he, even though it was occupied by others at that point. Now, this text in itself, it, it really does cover that they have conquered pretty much the whole, if not mostly the whole west side of the Jordan, right? 31 kings. Um, the, the passages that follow uh, is going to be focused on the east side of the Jordan. So it does seem like the, the chapter that we're in is this nice hinge that says, okay, you know, we're, we're about halfway done, or at least we're, we're done on this side. We're going to move on to the next. So grammatically, it's actually a great refresher in the midst of a text that would have been read both all in one sitting, but also referenced. And so here we have uh, this, this section kind of being this nice pause before there's plenty of land to be conquered next time in chapter 13. Um, believe it or not, we've come pretty close to the end of our time together. Well, anything else that you want to cover in this section? I, I think that we, we've covered a whole lot of, of different topics here. And I think the, the one that just keeps coming back to, to me as I read this, as I ponder uh, this uh, challenging section, as it were, is that God is the one in control, that Yahweh is the one who conquers. And we see that, the fulfillment of that in Christ, that uh, Yahweh, Yeshua, 
Jesus, our Christ, uh, conquers sin, death, and the power of the devil. And holding on to that in the midst of all the, the troubles of life, all the hardships of life, uh, the things that we don't understand and we wonder why, we always come back to that and we find that you know, Christ has conquered and we are part of Christ. We, we are more than conquerors through Christ uh, because of what he has done through baptism, through the Lord's Supper, and through the word uh, that comes to us each week. And so as we continue to study, we see that, the, that Yahweh fights for his people, that Christ has fought for us and conquered and won. And we live in that tension waiting for the fulfillment of that, but knowing uh, as people of hope, Oh, sure I understand. Oh, my, my watch decided it was going to go off. Um, <laughs> uh, my watch may not understand, but hopefully the, our listeners understand that God is the, the one who is over all things, and he is the one who conquers for us and fights for us and goes before us, even now into the, the end of the age. I agree wholeheartedly. And yes, just like Siri said, sometimes people don't understand. And you know, there's a lot of the ways that God operates that we don't understand either. So if you're one of those that's still frustrated or struggling with the idea of God conquering these people, and you just can't reason or reckon, rectify it in your mind, then just know this, that God knows better than we do. And, and God is faithful. And he is, of course, keeping his promises. But he also doesn't always tell us everything that he's aware of. So for that reason, we put our faith, hope, and trust in him alone. I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Jacob Heine, pastor of Faith Lutheran Church in Topeka, Kansas. Pastor, thanks for being on the show again. I can't wait to have you on. Uh, thanks for having me again, Pastor Boo. This is a lot of fun. I always look forward to the chance to be together with you and study God's Word. It's a, it's a joy every single time. Excellent. Wonderful. I'm glad it is. Well, folks, tomorrow we keep on going into Joshua 13. Now, as I said, there's still some lands to be conquered. Joshua is getting up in age, but the, the chapter itself unfolds a real pivotal moment in the Israelites' journey as they prepare to divide and inherit that promised land. This chapter really marks a transition, as I said earlier, from conquest to now distribution, as God commands Joshua to apportion the land amongst the tribes of Israel. It begins by detailing the territories that remain unconquered, reminding the Israelites that there's still some work to do. But we'll dive into this chapter and explore that meticulous division of land. We'll highlight the significance of the inheritance, the boundaries, God's faithfulness in fulfilling his promises to his people, which, of course, is the main point. As our guest said earlier, it's really the main point of the whole Bible. God's fulfilled his promise to us in these last days through Jesus. And there's still a few promises left to be fulfilled, but we know that he will. We know he will. So until tomorrow, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.